So that just gives you a little bit of a taste of what we're doing uh, here at the Ezra Institute, and it may uh, interest some of you as parents, grandparents, uh, and young professionals to consider uh, attending some of our reformational programs uh, during the summer. So, uh, my barging in on your day-to-day uh, -day, uh, is to talk just a little bit about Christian worldview and uh, as it relates to government and politics. <coughs> After all, ARPA is about is the Association of Reformed Political Action. And uh, so I just wanted to uh, perhaps set the context a little bit broadly for you, kind of shoot up to 10,000 feet and uh, think about what the ultimate objectives are as uh, uh, many of you are very much down in the detail, the everyday detail of uh, living and acting and working as Christians in political life. Ultimately, uh, what we're dealing with, what you're dealing with, is a question of authority. Uh, it's an association of reformed political action because there's a particular vision of authority, of sovereignty that is, that's at work in uh, human affairs. And uh, this week, actually, the beginning of this week was a good illustration of this for me, because after 17 years of living in Canada, uh, two of my children being, of my three children being born here, uh, my wife and I uh, became Canadian citizens. And uh, we were sworn in. It shouldn't have taken us that long, really. We've just been so busy and got around to it. And, uh, uh, but our, our two younger children were, were born Canadian citizens. But we were, we were sworn in in a courtroom in the Mississauga area. And uh, given a copy as you go in, of having gone through all of the previous processes, you're given a copy of the charter. And uh, we were sat, actually, interestingly enough, because of our surname uh, being the beginning of the alphabet, uh, on the front row, right in front of the judge's bench, and the Canadian coat of arms behind the judge, with a picture of Queen Elizabeth II just to the left. And you're given a copy of the charter. People have got a chance to review the, the documents and the oath they're about to take that's in front of them. And then we, uh, it came to the oath-taking, and we swore uh, an oath. Actually, you either swear an oath, you swear, or you affirm. You can only swear if you swear on a holy book, okay, which apparently now is more than this. Um, but, you can, but if you swear on the word of God, on scripture, you, you, you're swearing. If you're not swearing, you affirm. And you're swearing to Queen Elizabeth II, and for me, that wasn't difficult, because really it's just a reaffirmation. I was born a British citizen. But also because Queen Elizabeth, in her coronation oath, swears to, under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, to uphold the law and gospel of God in all her domain. So she submits herself to Christ. And as I was looking at the charts there, it was nice to see that the preamble is still there. Recognizing the supremacy of God. So that's the Western legal political tradition as I experienced it this week. However much it may seem to some as merely paper now, that is our political tradition. And it has a bearing on this question of authority. Now, historically, and uh, in terms of the structure of our thinking, 
in various disciplines, in what we call the sciences today, if you get to a certain degree of expertise, you can be referred to, or you may be referred to, as an authority in your area. And if you're an expert in physics, or in chemistry, or in political science, eventually you may be recognized as an authority. But then we're talking about theoretical or scientific learning. But that sort of knowledge that's always being revised and changed, this is why people endlessly do PhDs, to update uh, the latest expertise in a given area of knowledge, that's preceded by a more primary knowledge, a more basic, more foundational knowledge, and that's the everyday knowledge of experience, it's our practical, everyday, immediate knowledge of the real world in ordinary life which deepens and grows with time. It's the knowledge of being a human being in God's world. And it doesn't require being an expert in any particular given discipline or area. In fact, all that kind of expertise depends on this primary, more foundational, fundamental form of knowledge. Egbert Sherman says that the knowledge that comes, this is the knowledge that comes from a basic trust, is knowledge in the sense of acknowledge. It is knowledge of the heart. This knowledge, which concerns the basic direction of our life, is given concrete expression in our faith knowledge, in our assent and obedience to the divine revelation. This faith knowledge keeps every scientific knowledge in its limited, relative abstract and provisional place. Now, the, 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 the issue that we face as Christians in almost any given area of life is that people are tempted to elevate this secondary, provisional kind of knowledge, this expertise, if you will, to the place of primary knowledge. To the place of primary knowledge. In other words... People's faith shifts from God to man, from revelation to scientific theories. By scientific, I don't just mean the natural sciences, there might be the social sciences, the political sciences. From basic trust in God's created reality and word to human abstractions. That's not to say that doing your historical research carefully, doing your political science carefully, doing your biology and chemistry carefully is important. It is. It deepens our understanding of a given area, but it can't displace it. Theoretical ideas can't remake the world. They can't alter this primary knowledge. And one of the challenges we're facing in political life in the West, and have done for now for about a century, is the, the various abstract ideas about the world are trying to replace primary knowledge. So final authority resides only with the author of creation. That's why he's the author, authority. Final authority must lie, for us as Christians, with the author of creation, who places human beings as his image bearers, subject to his law word for everything within creation. And that's true in biology, it's true in history, but it's also true in political science as well. Now, this brings us to another interesting concept. The concept of heresy. The concept of heresy. So there's, I just literally in three minutes there tried to illustrate for you 
the Christian view of the relationship between what they might call theoretical ideas of knowledge, abstract knowledge, and a Christian view of revelation. And it's critical when we come to this concept, which does bear relevance to what I'm going to say about authority and politics in just a moment. Because the heretic is somebody who wants to establish independent authority rather than acknowledge it. The heretic is somebody who wants to establish their own independent authority rather than acknowledge it. The word heresy comes from a Greek word there. And the essential meaning is to choose for oneself. So I strongly suspect for most of you in most of your church denominations, you started propagating in your local congregation that the Trinity consisted of seven members, um, and uh, you know you were one of them, um, that you might come under church discipline. Right? That, 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 that some kind of more, something more maybe you start denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or the authority of Scripture. The heretic is one who, in terms of their belief, their confession, their teaching has placed their personal eccentric choice or opinion above received authority, ultimately the authority of God and his word. And the early church found itself, it's a depiction of a church council there, battling with heretical ideas arising from various creative theologies that were trying to fuse Christianity with paganism. And this is why we got some of the great confessions and creeds of the church that were battling for a faithful acknowledgement, a faithful reception of legitimate authority that was rooted in Christ. Now, we're in a culture today in the West that certainly makes light of scriptural authority at best and the creeds and confessions of the church. Church discipline is taken pretty lightly even by many Christians today. And so actually we find that the Christian idea of heresy is not tolerated. The Christian idea of heresy is not tolerated. At the same time though, a new source of authority which suddenly replaces scripture and biblical confessions within that culture, uh, is brought in. So you don't actually have a disappearance of authority. What you have is the transference of authority. You don't have the disappearance of authority in our culture. We're witness to the transference of authority. And the new authority is taken very seriously and the new orthodoxy then, based on the new authority, is taken very seriously as well. And it starts to be enforced with the tools of discipline that adhere to that authority. There's illustrations of this going on all the time. Um, a, uh, a recent example would be a hospice in Western Canada that's now been ordered to start euthanizing people uh, this year. So there have been some um, changes uh, in the, with the elections in Western Canada, but there were all kinds of threats being made against homeschoolers and Christian schools in Western Canada recently, that you cannot make this confession, you cannot make that confession. In the UK, for example, there's just been a, um, 
uh, a doctor, you may have come across this case, who refused to refer even hypothetically to a six foot two bearded man as a woman in the surgery, and uh, the tribunal found that his defense, based on that he wasn't going to lie about human biology or about human identity, based on Genesis 1 and 2, that, that what is said there in Genesis 1 and 2 leads to really a violation of basic fundamental rights, human rights. This was covered in the New York Times, or it might have been the Washington Compost, it was one of the two. Um, so, when you look in the US, USA or Canada or the UK, we see that increasingly the Christian view of things, look at what doctors are facing right now in Canada, with respect to their own conscience rights. We start to see that a new authority, a new source of orthodoxy is established, and we find that we're the heretics. And the new orthodoxy is then, the new discipline is enforced with the new tools adhering to that particular kind of authority. So we haven't dispensed with this idea culturally, it's just been transferred. It's transferred. Now think about the influence of this concept. Remember, when you think about this concept, you doubtless think about church councils, uh, presbyteries, uh, local communities of elders, and so forth, church tribunals. And that's important. It's a, it's a church matter. But we often fail to recognize the implications of heretical ideas and teachings as they impinge upon life outside the institutional church. So there may be an issue with a heretic in the church, but what does that heretic do, that person who denies basic features of the Christian faith, in other areas of life? We, we, if we ecclesiasticize, that is, churchify the concept of heresy and with regard to false belief, and we think it's only got relevance inside the life of the church, we will fail to see how it affects other vitally important areas of life. Now, if you look at the ecumenical confessions of the church, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, you see that they affirm the total lordship and authority of Almighty God, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that he is the judge of all people. That's, that's the basic, even if you go, even if you forget these three forms of unity for a minute, just go to the ecumenical confessions of the Church of the Shed by us all. There's a minimal confession there. So to deny that is a heretical position in the history of the Church. Now, think about how that confession of Christ's Lordship has a bearing in political life, governmental life. What we believe about Christ's authority has far-reaching implications for how we think about government and politics. And actually, as we understand better why we think what we think, it helps us to engage those who don't think the way we do. It helps them to grasp the basic ideas of authority and sovereignty that they're taking for granted. There are times, in fact, when heretical thinking is only brought to light outside of the ecclesiastical sphere, where we're externalizing our faith in the rest of life. There's a tendency among Christians today, for example, to acquiesce to secularism's radical dualism, its dualistic assumptions about the world. And this is uh, a context in which one foundational truth about reality is thought to have uh, to bear authority in the private sphere of the church, 
So let's take the Lordship of Christ, for example. Many Christians will think, yes, I believe that. And it has authority in the so-called private sphere. But you transfer them then out of that area of life, i.e. the life of the church or their personal faith, and a contrary commitment then holds at exactly the same time in their thinking about the public sphere. Because there is a latent, a hidden dualism in the thinking of many Christians. If you want to know why it's difficult to get lots and lots of people out to these kinds of events, if you want to know why it's difficult to get Christians thinking along these lines, this is part of it. This is part of it. It's the latent dualism in our thinking. Consequently, on all kinds of issues, Many believers will frequently suggest that the state is merely a neutral apparatus to uphold a vague notion of the common good. And therefore, things like abortion and the redefinition of marriage and euthanasia and pornography and any other number of issues are really just not all that important. I mean, they're not gospel issues, are they? Are they really gospel issues? Well, is the Lordship of Jesus Christ a gospel issue? It is a gospel issue. And we'll take marriage very quickly as an example. Uh, creation begins with a wedding. God describes his relationship with Israel as a jilted husband. Christ comes to us through the Holy Family. The first miracle Jesus performs is at a wedding. Christ describes his relationship between himself and his church in terms of marriage. And history ends with a wedding, with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then my friend, colleague Peter Jones says that marriage is a cosmological key to the universe. So the pervasive influence of, of heresy is inevitable because religious presuppositions are the point of departure, not just in the church, not just in theology, but in every area of life and thought. Fundamental presuppositions, religious presuppositions, are the point of departure in every area. Well, what does our culture and society look like today as we think about the concepts of authority and heresy? Joe, are you really grumbling about modern democracy? <laughs> Wait, what's wrong with this? I mean, are you really kicking up a stink about this? Well, let's just think about um, what we mean when we talk about uh, this concept for a minute. Let me try and relate democracy and authority and heresy. Now, that sound, might sound like it's a bit shocking. Um, and I'm going to talk about liberal democracy in just a moment. I mean, do I not believe in the consent of the people to be governed? Do, I have, do, we have, do we as Christians, should we have a problem with that? Do we wish to replace historic democratic institutions with an absolute monarchy or some form of dictatorial government? No, we don't. We have no desire to do away with the hard-won cultural and political freedoms that have been bequeathed to us by our Christian forebears, which I was reminded of just this week, as I said. And we've got parliamentary and congressional institutions in the West that involve responsible citizens in the election of their political leaders. 
This being the case, what is really at issue with the question of the liberal democracy that the majority of Western people accept and celebrate today? How could I dare to be talking about Western politics and in the same breath be talking about heresy? Well, look, think about it for a moment. There are a variety of forms of government or structures of political life in the Western tradition. Britain has a monarchy, it has a formally established church, uh, we have a House of Lords and a House of Commons. I know I'm in the graveyard slot here, um, and you've just had your lunch, but um, I'm going to try and do my best to keep you awake. <laughs> Canada, we've got an upper house and a lower house, we've got Senate and Commons, and we have a Viceroy for the monarchy called the Governor General, possibly soon to be Harry. Um, <laughs> States, uh, we've got a president, so we've got the executive office, we have Congress and a Senate, and in all of these forms of government, we have a ostensibly independent judiciary. So that's the form, that's the structure. In all these contexts, the state is a public legal institution over a particular territory. And its purpose is to serve the public interest. And that's actually the meaning of the Latin expression, by the way, res republica. In this sense, actually, the modern Western state is republican. Canada's republican, Britain is republican, America is republican in that sense, or if they are republics by definition, irrespective of whether it's a constitutional monarchy, because the res republica simply means that the state is now a public legal institution, it is not a private thing, as it used to be. That's what the modern idea of the state is. Government ceased to be, the state ceased to be something that was multiple territories of private authority to a unified public authority. Now, in, in this little bit of time that I've got, I'm not going, we haven't got time to talk about the various forms and structures and is America better or ours better and whatever. That, that, that's not my subject. The subject, though, is the religious direction of all of this. Where does ultimate sovereignty lie? That's the vital question. And essentially, there are only three choices. There are only three choices as we think about this issue. First is popular sovereignty. Popular sovereignty. The will of the 51%, radical democracy. The second is state sovereignty, where ultimate sovereignty lies with the state itself, or God's sovereignty is where ultimate authority lies. Now, in a book published in 1955 by Lord Percy of Newcastle, he wrote a book called The Heresy of Democracy, a study in the history of government. And he said democracy in the ideological sense, democracy as ideology, is a philosophy which is nothing less than new religion. It's a philosophy that's nothing less than a new religion, in the ideological sense. He called attention to these foundations. Now think about that for a moment. What does the word democracy even mean? I hope you thought about this. It's derived from a Greek word, demokratia. It brings together these two words, demos meaning the people and kratos meaning authority. Popular parlance, people, power. Demos, 
kratos, people, power. And the underlying idea of radical democracy is popular sovereignty. Now, in that sense, I should tell you right away that neither Britain nor Canada are democracies. I'm going to qualify that in a moment. We've never been democracies in the radical sense, ever, in our history. Popular sovereignty, and indeed state sovereignty, as we think about them, the question becomes, are they consistent with an orthodox Christian confession? Now, ideological democratic thinkers like John Dewey held that there was a basic contradiction between the popular sovereignty of man and the absolute sovereignty of God. And he was right, actually. He regarded Christianity and the family as aristocratic, anti-democratic institutions and inconsistent with a radical vision of democracy. I'm going to illustrate that in just a second. See, you're looking forward to it. <laughs> so to, to properly understand whether what we're talking about here actually is rooted in a heretical confession, a non-Christian confession, expressed in the political sphere, we need to do two things. First, we're just going to consider briefly the religious assumptions of liberal, the liberal democratic tradition, and then we're going to think about the claims of Jesus Christ. Now, that's all we'll do. From a scriptural standpoint, I hope. So let's think about the origins, very quickly, of liberal democracy. This, this qualifier liberal uh, is actually important. Democratic institutions are one thing. We're supportive of those. You're, you're here because you're supportive of those. I'm supportive of those. But liberal democracy, liberal democratic society is another. And here's the first reason that we have a problem. It's very misleading to describe Western culture as consisting of democratic societies. Canada is not a democratic society. That is a reductionism that's reductionistic because society as a whole is not democratic. This is why we've, you can see how in our thinking we've elevated the state to everything. I can explain why. This is what the South African philosopher Danny Strauss says. He says, the adjective democratic acquired a new life in its use as a noun. For in this case, the state itself was identified with a substantive democracy, and subsequently it was combined with a wide array of adjectives, liberal democracy, and so on. This practice loses sight of the fact that the adjective democracy has a very limited scope. The adjective democracy has a much more modest domain of application restricted merely to the election process as stipulated in the constitution of a just state. So what he's saying is, most spheres of life in our society are not democratic. The family is not a democracy. Right? There was no vote that I can remember taken on whether I could be a father. And certainly my children don't vote on what's going to happen in the house. Do your children vote? Sorry, Dad, you, Mom, you've been outvoted. <laughs> now, that's not the way the family works. Is your church a democracy? 
I mean, I'm not saying do you vote on the budget. I'm saying that in the life of your church, are you voting on what doctrines we're going to, are you voting on what the pastor's going to preach on? And churches, there's a, there's a, they are communities, but they're not democracies. Businesses and universities aren't democracies. Does the CEO, every time he wants to make a decision, go to all the shareholders and say, I was thinking about it, let's just take a vote on it. Businesses aren't democracies, universities aren't democracies, and they're very much part of society. So we mustn't be reductionistic. This is, you can see there how the state is taking central place in people's thinking, because just because we install a government by an election does not make society democratic. Because the state is only one portion of society. When we go further than that, we have, we're seeing the state in parts the whole relationship with everything else. So we're saying the state is essentially everything and it swallows all the other aspects. It's part of itself. Because of sin, no government is perfect. But over many centuries, the fundamental liberties of democratically elected representative government which, by the way, for a long time, didn't include lots of groups of people in the history of the West. I mean, you had to own property for a start in most instances. Now you've got people in prison voting. We won't go into that. <laughs> but we have what emerged was what we call the Anglo-American tradition. However, the development of the notion of liberal democracy, which followed the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, is a more complicated matter. That was not just about a mode of installing a government. Defining liberalism, then, is actually quite tricky because the terms meant different things to different people. Some people think of liberalism, especially some of the more traditional American thinkers, as free markets, individual liberties, small government. But the dominant liberal states, take the Democrats in the United States, for example, right now, or the progressives in Canada, they think of liberalism as the welfare state, sexual libertinism, and big government. So it's a pretty tricky term to define, and we haven't got time to survey the whole history of the development and how that term came to be used, but John Locke is often thought of as the father of Anglo-American liberalism. He never used the term liberal. Once. He didn't use it. It wasn't even available to him. So he didn't use that term. This term actually refers to the principles of the French Revolution, and right up through most of the 19th century, it was seen as French doctrine, not the Anglo-American doctrine, not the Canadian doctrine. The more recent descendant, though, of this liberal genealogy is the Anglo-American development, where the word liberal came into common use in the second decade of the 20th century in the United States and started to be associated with Locke and individual property rights and so forth. So this later version of liberalism is the one that's often commended and defended by Christians as ideal. It's grounded, we're told, in reason and in public reason. The radical liberal of the revolution then was tamed to a large degree and it mutated and it broke into various streams. So let's think about the rise of the new old liberalism for a moment. 
is the Jewish philosopher, political theorist, Yoram Hazoni. I'm sure the rest of your sessions today have been lighter than this, so, you know, it's just, it's just one. <laughs> yeah, so the other practical stuff after this, okay. But he says, he says to, um, with respect to liberalism broadly defined, he says it refers to an enlightenment political tradition descended from the principal political texts of rationalist political philosophers such as Hobbes, Locke, Spinoza, Rousseau, Kant, and reprised in countless recent works of academic political theory elaborating these views. And he goes on to say there are basically three fundamental axioms that undergird the new liberal democratic thinking. <laughs> he said they are these. One, the availability and sufficiency of reason. The availability and sufficiency of reason. <clears throat> Number two, the perfectly free and perfectly equal individual. <laughs> so the availability and sufficiency of reason, and two, a perfectly free, perfectly equal individual, and third principle, obligation arises from choice. Obligation only arises from choice. Now a critical concern that emerges from that for Hazoni is this. There is nothing in this liberal system that requires you or even encourages you to also adopt a commitment to God, the Bible, family, or nation. What is there in those three principles, he says, that even encourages you to adopt a commitment to those things? In fact, none of the primary forms of knowledge, remember the beginning of this lecture, all that way back, just as you finished lunch, I talked about secondary forms of theoretical knowledge, and I talked about primary knowledge, given to us in everyday life, and given to us in the Word of God. So despite the off-heard claim that liberal democracy is there to protect traditional belief, to protect it, and historic Christian institutions in a separate sphere of privacy will protect you there, and at the same time, we can ensure that nobody is coerced to be a Christian or live their life in the confines of a Christian view of human identity or human sexuality. <coughs> Despite that claim, as only says, everywhere it has gone, the liberal system has brought about the dissolution of these fundamental traditional institutions. Everywhere it's gone. What's the, why? How? Well, I'm just going to give you what he says is the answer. This was an article, I got this, by the way, from an article he published in First Things last year. He says this, liberalism is not a form of government at all. It is a system of beliefs taken to be axiomatic, which, which, from which a form of government can supposedly be deduced. In other words, it is a system of dogmas about the nature of human beings, reason, and the sources of moral obligation that bind us. Liberalism is a substantive belief system that provides an alternative foundation that has not coexisted with earlier political tradition rooted in the Bible as we were told it would. It has rather cut this earlier tradition to ribbons. The uh, English scholar, this gentleman is a friend of mine actually, Samuel Burgess, did his PhD in 
the liberal tradition in the UK. He says, both liberalism and socialism have sought to exorcise religious belief from politics in their own way. He goes on to say, only to replace it with their own religious confessions. With their own religious confessions. Now, that construction of an alternate belief system is to be expected from the children of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. We can expect that. The difficulty, though, is when it makes its way into the church. Among Christians. You may recognise this name. Raise your hand if you know who Van Prinsperer was. Very good. Excellent. He says, he's talking about now the French Revolution. He's living just after the, the first phase of the French Revolution. He says, the revolution with its variety of schools of thought and its successive historical manifestations is the consequence, the application, the unfolding of unbelief. The unfolding of unbelief. Now, somebody who's well worth looking at in terms of the English tradition is Edmund Burke. He wrote a book on reflections on the revolution in France. He was a contemporary of William Wilberforce, great English parliamentarian. He was actually supportive of the American Revolution, as was Wilberforce. And he believed that the Christian faith was the only true basis for civil society, and that it was the source of all good and all comfort. And he challenged the idea that the emerging liberal system was neutral, was in any way neutral. He argued that the sovereignty of God was the source of all delegated human power and authority. And he said, the principles of the French Revolution put this under direct assault. These were the philosophes, these were the revolutionaries. A revolution which proved to be the mother of all subsequent political revolutions in Europe and beyond. So if you want to know the source of the Russian Revolution, and the, uh, to a large extent, even the, uh, many of the socialist revolutions in Asia and Africa, you have to start with the French Revolution. They denied, the philosophes denied, that society is a historical, cultural development, that it's God-given, that it's subject to his norms and sovereign government. Rather, they said it was this. Human society is a rational social contract. A rational social contract. And it's drawn up by free and autonomous individuals. Have you noticed how in the last 50 years especially, human dignity, what it means to really be human, has been essentially redefined in terms of autonomy. So if anything infringes on radical autonomy, you're a denier of human dignity. So a social contract of autonomous individuals, a rational social contract made by these so-called free Individuals. Now, Burke saw beneath this veneer of equality, liberty, fraternity, brotherhood, was the goal of the elimination of the Christian faith from public life. He wrote about it. He understood that hostility engendered by this cult of reason would not end with an assault on the church, but would also bring with it an assault on property, on life, and upon liberty. And the brutality of the revolutionary period in its destruction of churches, freedoms, political opponents, property and lives in this bloodbath that ended in the Napoleonic dictatorship bore out 
these concerns. The Enlightenment revolutionary view of the human person is that a rational soul is obliged to a law of reason. Man's law, man's law of reason, it's independent. It's, it's a sort of, uh, what they were doing is they were taking a kind of scientific mathematical idea and saying we can take what we've discovered in mathematics, this sort of rational order, and we can come up with a political version of it. We can reduce everything to the most basic units and recreate culture, social life, society in terms of that mathematical idea. The problem is, these ideas are nowhere to be found in scripture. Or in the Western political tradition prior to the French Revolution. The Bible sees human beings as fallen, sinful people. I remember sitting at a Labour Party committee meeting a couple of years ago, that's the Socialist Party in England, in Parliament, in London, after the uh, Labour had lost the previous election to the one they just lost by a massive landslide. And um, I was sat in that uh, meeting with a colleague who's a scholar, he's an expert in biblical law, he teaches uh, biblical law at the University of Bristol. And the keynote speaker began by saying, the Labour Party, the Socialist Party, needs to return to our most fundamental ideological conviction. And what was that? The man is basically good. <laughs> that was the beginning of his speech. I looked at my colleague. And what is left of value to say once you've started with that basic fundamental premise that, you're, that the government of human beings is you're dealing with people who are fundamentally and basically good? They're not fallen, they're not sinners. According to Scripture, man is under law in every area of life, and not only is he dependent upon God and subject to him in the totality of his being, but he's set not as a rational, isolated individual making a contract, but in mutual interdependence with other people, with people actually long dead, who shape the culture in which we live today. We're born into families and communities, that shape the customs and the culture and society in which we live. We are not voluntary participants in a religiously neutral, self-evidently rational society created by the contractual fiat word of abstract individuals in a state of nature. That's a bit of a mouthful, but that's basically what they were arguing. It doesn't actually bear any resemblance to the real world. We're set in families, cultures, and societies as God's image bearers. Yes, we have equal intrinsic value and worth. We're not equal in every respect, though. And we certainly can't do what the modern progressives want, which is to, have to orchestrate an equality of outcomes. I mean, some people are tall, some are short. Some are intellectually gifted, some are not. Some are creatively, artistically gifted, some are not. Some are beautiful, some are not so beautiful. And all of these things impact us where we get to in life, in different contexts. Right? The, the, the gifts we're given by God, by virtue of creation, shape who we are, shape our lives. We're all subject to God's law in that we're equal. We're all equally in need of redemptive salvation in the life and work of Christ. And we are equally his image bearers. 
Arzoni says this, he says, whereas Hebrew scripture depicts human reason as weak, capable only of local knowledge and generally unreliable, liberalism depicts human reason as exceedingly powerful, offering universal knowledge and accessible to anyone who will consult it. Similarly, whereas the Bible depicts moral and political obligation as deriving from God and inherited by way of familial, national and religious tradition, Liberalism makes no mention of either God or inherited tradition, much less specific traditional institutions such as the family or nation. So, actually, John Locke, the English thinker, his faulty assumptions about the human person led to faulty assumptions about political life. Because government could now become a creation of the people beholden only to the people and dissolvable by the people because it's just a contract between free, independent, equal individuals. And in keeping with that basic idea, Locke wanted to keep the concerns of church and state, of religion and the magistrate of Christian law and natural law separate, <laughs> which was also artificial. Now, of course, we recognize the separation of the jurisdiction of church and state. But religion as an all-encompassing reality, of course, is going to shape the magistrate. Of course, it's going to shape our understanding of law, of what just law is. The affairs of religion and the affairs of the magistrate, for law, though, are supposedly entirely unrelated. And the state was free, in its view, from metaphysical religious claims. So that, in theory, you can leave the private sphere of religion to organize on its own and go its own way. And that's exactly what's not happened. Burgess says, Locke consistently attempts to avoid the conclusion that in disputed cases, the state may need to take its own theological character seriously. The state is not a neutral arbitrator, but necessarily has its own ethical and indeed theological values, so the citizen is at times confronted with a clash of civic and religious duties. And herein lies one of the fundamental problems faced by modern liberal democracies. They have forgotten that their own beliefs are theological in nature and not simply the product of reason. So this contemporary misplaced belief that the truth of liberal egalitarian democracy is evident to all reasonable people of goodwill it arises from a supposedly religiously neutral public reason, actually has led to a remarkable degree of intolerance. A remarkable degree of intolerance. And the French Revolution was the same. A, a ferocious anger towards Christians, churches, despite explicit legal provisions for freedom of religion in the French Revolution, was unleashed. And as this liberalism mutated, intolerance to Christianity has proven increasingly intractable. And this leads us now to my final consideration here about where we are today. Today's, sorry, I didn't give you the second half of that quote. Today's liberal democracy. Many of you will have heard of John Rawls. So what happened is a number of different things took up the basic ideas of law. And they pushed it to greater levels of abstraction, probably no one more famous than Rawls here. 
And he looks to refine for the 20th and 21st centuries this rationalistic contract thinking of various philosophers. And Rawls begins with an idol. That's how he starts. What is that idol? He begins with an abstract, rational individual, free and equal, possessing natural rights, from which you can supposedly deduce a rational form of government. Rawls offers absolutely no metaphysical, that is what you might call religious or theological justification for any of his claims there. That's just taken as a basic axiom about the nature of human beings. It's a creed of dogmatic statement. In his own words, any comprehensive doctrine, religious or secular, can be introduced into any political argument at any time. But I argue that people who do this should also present what they believe are public reasons for their argument. So their opinion is no longer just that of one particular party, but an opinion that all members of the society might reasonably agree to, not necessarily that they would agree to. What's important is that people give the kinds of reasons that can be understood and appraised apart from their particular comprehensive doctrine. Well, he either doesn't appreciate or is unwilling to acknowledge that reasons cannot be properly appraised or understood outside the comprehensive worldviews from which those reasons to be comprehensible arise. Nor does he acknowledge that his own perspective on the just society is itself a comprehensive doctrine. See how this... But how we kind of got to this stage uh, today. I mean, how are you going to present an argument about um, marriage or women, for example, to a large Muslim community in Bradford, England, who believe that Sharia law needs to be imposed on the nation? What's, what's your public reason you're going to offer then? Locke, like uh, Rawls, like Locke, seeks to banish religious belief from the sphere of government, but he does so by arguing for this distinction between privately held religious beliefs and common reason. Beliefs that are allegedly not obvious and evident to the common public reason of other citizens are ruled out of bounds for political life. But of course, this just begs the question what is reasonable? What is fair? What is just? I mean, those self-explanatory ideas? Or do they have to be vested with some kind of content? By what standard is the question? And who has the right to decide what are private beliefs and what constitutes common reason? I mean, is the the idea that human beings are made in God's image and have equal intrinsic worth? A private belief? Or is it common reason? According to the English courts, for that English doctor, that's now a private belief and one that militates against liberty. In what sense and on what grounds are Rawls beliefs about humanity as rational, free and equal to be regarded as public? And the Christian view of man as God's image-bearer, subject to transcendent laws of justice, merely private. Now, I'm not denying that Christians can offer reasons for their political arguments that non-Christians can agree with. I'm not denying that. But not for the reasons Rawls thinks. 
We can, but not for the reason he thinks. Unfortunately, his confused view inevitably leads to the incoherent situation inherent in modern liberal democracies today, that there can be no public privileging of any one religion. No public privileging of any one religion except secular liberal democracy and its religious assumptions about the human person and human life and human reason and so on. Now that's an incoherent state of affairs, but that is the state of affairs. This doctrine enforces the interiorization and relativization of non-secular religious belief. And Christianity, we're told, can have a voice only insofar as it can make common cause with Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Paganism, pretty much any other ism, and only when it enters the discussion in terms of public reason that the secular liberal can accept. <clears throat> Although Muslims get a free pass on that in the UK. They can, they can argue from a distinct Islamic point of view. Within the contemporary liberal democratic views of both popular and state sovereignty, rooted in this idea of autonomous reason, you're actually witnessing secularist theories of political science that have taken the place of creational and biblical revelation fashioned into new articles of faith that underpin now the social order. Democratic liberalism has become an impersonator of primary knowledge and a new confession of faith, basically. That's what we're involved with, that's what we're up against. And this has permeated every aspect of people's lives. Here's a fantastic Polish thinker, a philosopher. He wrote a book called The Demon in Democracy. I'm almost done. He said this. He writes with insight about the present situation in the West. He says, the fact is that we have been more and more exposed to an overwhelming liberal democratic omnipresence which seems independent of the will of individuals, to which they humbly submit and which they perceive as compatible with their innermost feelings. This will permeates public and private lives, emanates from media, expresses itself through common wisdom and persistently brazen stereotypes through educational curricula, from kindergartens to universities, and through works of art. This liberal democratic general world does not recognize geographical or political borders. This world ruthlessly imposes liberal democratic patterns on everything and everyone. The temptation in all of that is synthesis for Christians. Right? With that overwhelming omnipresence of this kind of liberal democratic ideal, the temptation is for us to synthesize that with Christianity. This was the second century Gnostic philosopher, Carpocrates, who said this is not an image of uh, Carpocrates, that's actually an image of Jesus. Did you recognize it? But it was the Greco-Roman Gnostic image of Jesus. Because men like Carpocrates sought to synthesize Greek thought and the Christ of Scripture. And we're at, we, we have the same risk today, to synthesize the Christ of Scripture and modern liberal democratic reason. The problem with Hippocrates' Greco-Roman Jesus was that he had a shelf life only as long as that particular synthesis culture lasted. Once that culture collapsed, the relevance of their imaginary Gnostic Jesus disappeared with it. So let me end with a couple of thoughts on the claims of Christ. We don't want to reshape Jesus Christ in terms of the liberal democratic general will. 
and reduce him to the servant man's political reason. Nor can we push him into the private space. The imperial prerogatives of Christ are actually undeniable. They're set out everywhere in the Bible. You can't get away from them. Consider, for example, Jesus, the references to Christ as, as in Scripture as the Lord of glory, James 2.1. Lord of glory. This was a term that was actually reserved for absolute royal power in the ancient Orient among the great kings and emperors who thought of themselves as representatives of God in time. We see this attitude actually in Herod himself, who dressed himself one day, you'll remember in Acts, 20, in Acts 12, in brilliant garments to reflect the sun. He stands in the temple, declares that all the glory belongs to him, and he was struck down by God. Now the ambassadorial claim, the uh, command that we receive in scripture from the Lord of glory, in Matthew 28 for example, states and presupposes the absolute authority of Christ to possess and rule the nations. You see that in Psalm 2. His absolute authority to possess and rule the nations. And in Acts chapter 2, blazing fire, a symbol of glory, appeared on the heads of the disciples of Pentecost and they were empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit for the task of spreading the message of the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom. The realm of the Lord Jesus Christ. His rule, his authority, his salvation. The idea that this commission, this great empowering, was intended for a purely interiorized faith, or some narrow religious sphere as defined by the modern liberal state, is ludicrous. The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, and it's the duty of the modern state to let him in and to submit to him, not to try to control him. And actually, that's exactly what Queen Elizabeth II swore at her coronation. This is a far cry from what we experience today, of course, and what we see in most of the churches. And this is because we are exposed to what Herman Doerer called a strong revival of the ancient pagan conception, which claimed all of life's spheres for the state, considered all morality to, be, morality to be state morality, and was therefore not aware of the problem of the relation between individual conscience and state law. Somebody, I hope you're all familiar with. Christian Europe has dethroned the one who was once its king, and the world city has become the queen under whose scepter people willingly bow down. He said that about a hundred years ago. And we've come some distance since then. So, what I've said to you really is this that the most fundamental confession of Christians about the Lordship. Day, is increasingly viewed as heretical by a Western culture that's moved in an opposite direction. And what we're dealing with when a denial of that reality of who Christ is is expressed in political life, you're dealing with a political expression of heresy. The cry of the 18th century liberal was vox populi, vox dead. Who knows what that means? The voice of the people is the voice of God. Vox populi, vox dead. And that's no less heresy just because it's in politics and because you're not likely to get into trouble with your elders for being a raging liberal democrat in your thinking uh, in the life of your local church. 
The liberal account of authority and sovereignty, uncritically adopted by many Christians today, I've said, also has a poor record of preserving freedom and justice and dignity for persons made in the image of God. Look at what's happened to marriage. Look at what's happened to life, abortion, euthanasia. Look at what's happening with pornography or confiscatory levels of taxation or poverty and delinquency driven by increasingly the assault on the family or what's happening with speech codes and so on. All the emphasis on human autonomy means the attempt to recreate society in terms of sinful humanity. Now, I'm not saying this because I think that you can just pick up the Bible. I'm saying it's sound here. You know, just take this into uh, uh, just just take this into Parliament and you know read them a few passages, and you know everything will be sorted out. You're always younger about that. <laughs>
So we're left with this very simple choice in our era, I think, Hippocrates or Christ. Only one of those has a future. Only one of them has a future. We can either attempt a synthesis and disappear with rebellion, or we can stand for Christ. I don't know whether that's what he looked like. Maybe you're not offended by an image of Christ. It's just a movie. I actually don't have a problem. Never just stop, just stop digressing. <laughs> <laughs> he was a man as well. He was fully God and fully man. Right? Hippocrates or Christ. His sovereignty or the sovereignty of man's reason. We've only got five minutes left for questions. There was supposed to be 15. Um, are we going to do any? Yeah, you know what? Actually, uh, we have a, a panel starting in about uh, 10 minutes, so we should have calls set up for that. That's yeah, that's right. Well, I'm going to hang out in the, uh, the lobby there for a little while. We've got a book table out there, uh, there's some of our resources there. But in particular, some of you have been on some of our programs. Um, pick up some of this, the uh, information that we've got about the Weather Academy, the Worldview Camp and the pastors and ministry leaders and Christian leaders retreat we've got coming up, where we get more time to delve into this. I throw in 50 minutes through the tunnel you there, and um, you've now got to go away and think about it. Then you come back to one of our uh, times together here at the centre, and we go into the details.